Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week George Monabio, who is an author, columnist for The Guardian newspaper and environmental campaigner. Among his books and projects, Feral, Rewilding the Land, Sea, and Human Life, The Age of Consent, Heat, How to Stop the Planet Burning, and the concept album Breaking the Spell of Loneliness. He has made a number of viral videos. One of them, How Wolves Change Rivers, has been watched over 30 million times on YouTube. George's latest book is Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. George Monbio, welcome to Talk Nation Radio. Thanks very much, Dave. Uh, Thanks for coming on. Very much enjoyed your latest book. Uh, You want to replace uh, certain neoliberal assumptions with what you call a new story, which uh, I I think is well summarized in your first chapter. Can you give us a a summary of the summary? Yes. Well, um, uh, the research I've been doing suggests that just about every successful um, political or religious transformation has made use of a particular story structure, which I call the restoration story, which broadly goes along these lines. It says um, the world has been, or the land has been, thrown into disorder by powerful and nefarious forces working against the interests of humanity. But the hero of the story, who might be one person or a group of people, uh, takes on those powerful and nefarious forces against the odds, overthrows them, and restores order to the land. And and you see that story structure used again and again and again. In fact, it's very hard to identify any successful major change, political or religious, that has taken place that hasn't used that story structure. And the problem we face at the moment is that even with the evident collapse of neoliberalism, its bankruptcy in financial terms, in political terms, in moral terms, in intellectual terms, because we've failed to develop a new restoration story with which to replace it, we're stuck with it. And you can't move on without a new story. You can't take away someone's story without giving them a new one. And so what I've tried to do is to do the beginnings of building that new restoration story. And it goes something like this. The the world has been thrown into disorder by powerful and nefarious forces of billionaires and the think tanks and the journalists who work for them, creating the impression that we should all be fighting each other like dogs fighting over a garbage tin, Um, that, that our primary role in life is to compete, is to try to become more wealthy and more powerful than each other, um, and, and that the whole of society must be geared to that aim. It must be treated as if it were a business and as if human relations are solely down to buying and selling so that we can discern who the winners are and who the losers are. And the winners are the rich people and they are virtuous and the losers are the poor people and they are not virtuous. That's, that, that's what they've told us and that's what we've come to internalize and believe. But we, the heroes of the story, the ordinary people of the world, can confront those powerful and nefarious forces by creating what I call the politics of belonging, a wholly new approach which says um, we will build community 
Um, and in building community, we build a new progressive politics. We um, um, have a, a, a stepwise process where you start by developing a rich participatory culture with people involved in community projects to a far greater degree than they are at the moment. You then start to um, build that into a participatory politics, and the great example of that is Reykjavik, the capital of Iceland, where basically the people now control the city through participatory politics and have completely transformed it. You then build on top of that a participatory economics, um, particularly control of, of, of budgets, of first municipal budgets and state budgets. In the end, I'd like to see federal budgets come under the um, same idea of participatory budgeting, where basically the people set the budget. And again, this is working tremendously well in the Brazilian city of Porto Alegre, where it began, and in several hundred other cities, in fact, where it's causing a revolution in um, social provision and inequality and all sorts of other good things, environmental quality, um, that, that we want to see. And then you take the fourth step, which is moving towards uh, basically a, a much more community ownership of the economy, where you see a sort of transfer away from oligarchs of land in particular, um, prime urban real estate into the hands of communities who are able to decide how that land is used and for what purposes. Um, and you ally this with a um, national political project, um, the sort of thing that we've seen with um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, for instance, and Ayanna Presley, um, uh, gradually taking over the instruments of established power at the national level at the same time. And what you have then is a coherent response to those nefarious and powerful forces and an ability to restore order to the land. Uh, wonderful summary. Uh, the the way in which the current neoliberal assumptions came to be uh, is is rather stunning, as recounted in your book, with this 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 rational right wing economic individual who who takes part in the games of game theory. You point out that this sort of started as a thought experiment by John Stuart Mill, and then became a modeling tool, and then became an ideological ideal, and then finally became a description of how people supposedly are or and or should yeah. be. I mean, how, how does something that stupid happen? <laughs> yeah, it takes a lot of very clever people to do something that stupid. Right. And, uh, and basically, this is the story of the evolution of our economics departments in our universities, which have just become ever more detached from the real world, from what is actually happening in the real world, and ever more detached also from the idea of what economics is meant to be for. What is economics meant to be for? Well, surely its purpose is to discern uh, ways of enhancing human well-being. But it's not for that at all anymore. Um, it's for trying to boost economic growth as much as possible. And they say, oh, well, that's the same as human well-being. It's not in any way the same as human well-being, especially when that economic growth is almost all falling into the pockets of the oligarchs, of the 1%, which is, is now the case on both sides of the Atlantic. Um, and especially when that economic growth is driving the living planet to destruction. 
you know, it's not actually enhancing our prosperity, it's not enhancing our well-being, and at the same time, it's destroying the Earth's ecology on which we all depend. And so we, we need a radical new economics. And the, the good news is that this is happening, um, that um, across economics faculties, we now see students revolting against the um, false feeding of this ridiculous, outdated neoliberal doctrine that dominates and asking for some real world economics, uh, economics which actually describes the world as it is, not the world as, as um, economics professors might imagine it, and an economics which actually tries to make the world a better place rather than just constantly feeding the beast of oligarchy and the beast of inequality. Let me let me ask a, a devil's advocate question because I, I basically agree with you that we have been trained to underestimate our our community, our altruism, generosity uh, of people. But you write that that terrorists are outnumbered by people who oppose terrorism. But I wonder mm-hmm. how many of those Massively. people. But how many of those people who oppose terrorism? also oppose the larger terrorism that we call war that generates the stuff we call terrorism. I mean, you you write that terrorism is created by a crisis of modernity, but studies actually say that over 95% of suicide terrorist attacks are conducted to encourage foreign occupiers to leave a terrorist's home country. Mm. So is is Mm. our altruism limited by our desire not to see our imperialism? Yes, well, um, it's a very good question, and you have um, this phenomenon called parochial altruism, and um, and that's sort of not altruism towards humanity in general, but towards a particular group, and the classic example of that is soldiers going into battle together, where they will literally lay down their lives for each other. They have very strong solidarity within the platoon, or, in, or, indeed, um, or indeed within the division, and, and, and will defend each other um, to, to the extent of losing their own lives. But, of course, in doing so, might well be um, committing crimes against other people and causing um, the deaths of other people, many of whom might be innocent. Um, but, and, of course, that is a, a, a human failing. It's a trap we keep falling into, um, failing to take a broad enough perspective um, on um, humanity itself and on our place within that humanity. But the extraordinary and striking thing is that, yes, we have this very, very powerful altruistic tendency. It's all too readily co-opted in the form of parochial altruism. But the hope is that as you, as we sort of broaden our global perspective with the help of, of much better communication. Um, it does seem to be um, that 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 focus seems to be getting wider and wider until we come to see more and more people as having the same basic humanity as we have, regardless of their colour, regardless of where they live, having the same basic rights as we have. Obviously, there's a backlash against that taking place at the same time with fascist movements and quasi-fascist movements, the demagoguery of people like Trump and Erdogan and Modi and... Orban and, and, and many others around the world. Um, but by and large, we see a, a general widening of the scope of altruism. But the important point to, to bear in mind here is that we are fundamentally altruistic creatures, even if it's so waylaid into parochial altruism. Right. And this whole um, e- economist story 
of us being fundamentally selfish and greedy has got no scientific basis for it whatsoever. It's right. a fairy tale. It doesn't stack up. There's been a huge amount of work here in psychology, in anthropology, in other social sciences, in evolutionary biology, all coming to the same conclusion that, that we are remarkably, extraordinarily, by comparison to any other animal, altruistic. We are speaking with George Monbiot, whose uh, wonderful new book is called Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis. Uh, George, you actually recommend a sort of a action uh, to get to better thinking. You recommend forming communal structures and behaviors locally to help develop habits and modes of thought that facilitate a change in worldview or at least national view. Uh, so it's not think globally, act locally, but it's act locally in order to think better nationally. And and I would suggest yeah. perhaps actually globally, not just nationally. Yeah. Is is yeah. that is that right? Yes, I think that's a very good summary. And you see, the great thing about community building and local action is you don't need anyone's permission to begin. You don't need any national political party saying, all right, we'll accept this as a policy. You can just start literally on your doorstep today by knocking on your neighbor's door or, 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 or sending out an email or a Facebook post or, 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 or just letters to, to your neighbor saying, hey, let's have a street party. Um, let's have a um, um, some shared childcare. Let's um, do some bulk buying together. Let's let's cook together once a week. You know th those sorts of things, and it is quite remarkable. We see how it, those initiatives proliferate. They have a, there's a there's some natural momentum which begins to develop, and some very interesting studies conducted in this country um, show that once you've got about ten to fifteen percent of the local community involved in community activities, you get this sudden takeoff. You get this massive sort of synergistic shift where it becomes the norm to, become, to, to, to be involved in community activities. And those who aren't involved in it begin to feel a bit left out and think, oh, why aren't I involved? Well, I better get involved. Whereas nowadays, it's a bit weird to be involved in community activities. But mm -hmm. you can... What these studies show is the way you can precipitate that shift. You can reach that 10 to 15 percent threshold, and then suddenly it's totally normal to do everything together or to do a whole load of things together. And, um, and, and, and then you can start saying, okay, now we've got people of all walks of life in the community working together, of all different origins, all different skin colors, all different religions. Let's build something which is for the good of all rather than just for the good of me and my family or just for the good of my particular faction, let's, let's say, right, you know, now, now we see ourselves as part of a wider group and we see everyone in that wider group as people like us. That is a great first step towards building a much more progressive and outward-looking politics. And then you see the ideal leaders uh, differently and you have a, a different mm -hmm. approach to, to politics that, that conceivably actually has an, an impact uh, on a larger scale. Well, you know, it's very interesting you say that because you also see those leaders beginning to emerge from those community building activities. And, and you know, the classic example is Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who came from exactly that. You know, and, and, and she was sort of tested through community building 
Um, and she emerged from that as this remarkable, charismatic, highly organized, graceful person who people thought, oh, we want her representing us. Yeah. And you sort of suddenly start to see the potential within your own community. You don't need someone parachuted in who, who's going to come along and say, oh, I can lead you. And you say, well, who are you? Um, you, you say, oh, there's someone you know, who's part of our group who, who actually lives here who can represent us because she um, you know, has proven herself already in these community activities. And you know, she's got this proper grounding. She's got her feet on the ground in the community. She knows what we want because she's one of us. Right. Her needs are our needs. Um, uh, her pain is our pain. What she's experienced is what we've experienced. And, and, and that is, that's true leadership. You know, true leadership comes from among the people that you're seeking to lead. It's not this sort of billionaire who turns up and says, uh, right, I, I want to lead you because I've got a big mouth. Right. Let me let me ask a, maybe it's a United States centric question, but in, in the U.S. and it's it's related to budgets, which the book deals with budgets in, in the U.S. Uh, out of federal discretionary spending, sixty percent is militarism, forty seven percent of federal income taxes, sixteen percent of the overall federal budget goes to killing large numbers of people. Wow. Uh, it's a, a tr- I didn't know it was that stark. That's it. The, 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 I mean, I, I knew it was horrendous. I didn't know it was that bad. Well, that's, I can. That's just horrific. I, I can send you the citations. It's it's a trillion dollars yeah, a yeah. year, one trillion dollars a year, not counting debt payments. Uh, and, and we could tax all the billionaires, all the millionaires, out of existence yeah. and not be dealing with this kind of money. It's the yeah. biggest potential yeah. source of money with which to try to save the environment, and it is the yeah. biggest destroyer of the environment. Militarism. Why do we not talk about it? Why do we mm-hmm. write books about budgets and economics and not mention the primary thing that the mm-hmm. government does mm-hmm. where all the money's going? Yeah, it's a good question, actually. We tend to box it off, don't we? We tend to say, all right, okay, I'm going to write a book about war and about um, the damage done by the military. And then, you know, as I've done, I'm going to write a book about civilian life and and, and what we do about civilian life. And, and, and you're right, there is a sort of invisible wall develops between the two which um which probably isn't very helpful well it, i can't i don't know how the wall can exist at all it, it when three percent of u.s military spending could end starvation uh, on earth yeah yeah one... no, no you're right and and the same in the uk i mean we you know we've got a ridiculous military budget and why you know who's going to invade us i mean even the the, the ministry of defense which you know is our uh, our pentagon um, over here it is the equivalent of the Department of Defense in the U.S. Um, actually, has published a document saying we face no threat of invasion. There is, we are not threatened um, um, by by any other nation intending to invade our shores. Say, so, okay, so why have we got all these nuclear submarines and why have we got all these um, um, ships rotting away in harbors and why have we got all these tanks? What are they all for, if that's the case? Well, the only thing they, they're used for is going abroad and causing trouble. Is that what, what, what we're paying for? Is, you know, have we opted to pay for that? Well, of course we haven't. And, and so it's a con. Right. You know, it's called defense. It's not defense at all. You know, the only thing we ever use it for is attack. 
You know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who you've brought up, was asked on uh, cable news not too long ago, uh, how are you going to pay for all of these wonderful things you want to do? This is the Mm -hmm. eternal question, which Bernie Sanders repeatedly answered, well, I'm going to raise taxes, but not really, and only these taxes, and here, look Mm -hmm. at the fine print, and he never got around, you're going to raise our taxes. Ocasio-Cortez had a very different answer. She said, I'm going to cut a very tiny percentage of military spending. And, and that shut mm-hmm. them up immediately. I, and, yeah. and there are now four, as I count them, four women who have won Democratic primaries in Democratic districts, in one case, a, a state, a Senate uh, nominee, uh, who have that answer, uh, cut military yeah. spending, pay for good things. Is that, is that a step up? Or is it or is, is Bernie Sanders right to to sort of avoid the, the whole topic of where all the money's going? And no, yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right, which we, we, we mustn't avoid it. And it is essential. I mean, it's just it is crazy. You know, what are we fighting? You know, we're fighting aliens, you know, you put together the world's defense budgets, attack budgets, rather, and you know, who are they aimed at? Um, and, and yet, you know, at the same time, We've got things we desperately need to fight, like climate breakdown. Right. You know, you, you put you put the same money into fighting that, and we've solved this existential problem. But you know, it gets a tiny, tiny fraction of the money that is being deployed against an imaginary threat. But this is a real threat, not just a threat; it's a reality. It's happening right now. The climate is breaking down. Right. And we're just it's, it's sitting there and twiddling our thumbs as the world burns. Well, you know, this is this is a, a crazy misallocation. It's just insane. You know, and, and the whole notion of threat is completely distorted. You know, what are the real threats that are facing the world? None of them can be solved with the sort of Hollywood movie approach of blowing it up or shooting at it. You know, we can't solve climate breakdown by shooting at it. We can't solve inequality by shooting at it. We can't solve the housing crisis by shooting at it. We can't solve... The, the, the wildlife crisis by shooting at it. You know, none of these things actually have a military solution. The the the, the solution has to be um, just, you know, a, a political solution plus um, financial solutions where we actually spend the money right. Yeah. So, of course, you're totally right about this. I, I'm very glad to hear you say it. I, I very much agree. Uh, well said. Uh, the, 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 the idea that you bring up toward the end of the book that I do, that I very much think uh, is needed and would help in this regard uh, of a world parliament, uh, how do you envision getting to that? Well, look, this is, I mean, it's a tough one. I, in fact, I wrote a whole book um, 10, 15 years ago now about... Um, um, how we would try to build a global democracy with a world parliament as one element of that. Now, you know, it, it is very difficult, but it's not impossible. We have such a thing as a European parliament, right. uh, where 27 nations are represented, soon to be 26, but currently 27 nations, um, and it functions pretty well. And it's a democratic forum in which you hold um, the bureaucracy, the European Commission, plus the nation-states in the form of the European Council, you hold them to account with the European Parliament. And why can't we have that model at a global level? Because at the moment, when you look at how global governance operates, it's totally undemocratic. You've got um, the, the UN dominated by the Security Council, by the five official nuclear powers, 
uh, well, why should they dominate everyone else? Why should they have a veto on everybody else's business? Um, uh, you know, when, when there are 190-something members, why are those five members the ones who, who are able to call all the shots, literally in some cases call the shots? So how, how can got, the other 195 countries overthrow that power of those five countries? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, this is the question, but the only way you're going to do it is by mobilizing on a very large scale within those nations. And to do that, you've got to get this stuff to the front of people's minds. You've got to say, you know, it, it, it's not enough um, only to look at the community and the national level. We have to look to the global level, too, because what we try to do locally is constantly undermined by global forces. It's undermined by um, um, trade rules, which are sometimes grotesque in their effects on people's ability to defend their local environment, defend um, the, the defend social standards and the rest. Um, it's undermined by the World Bank and the IMF, which are controlled by the rich nations, but mostly operate in the poor nations, which have no democratic control over them at all. Um, and it's undermined by this grossly unfair military dispensation, which is a sort of neo-colonial dispensation governed by the UN Security Council, where basically the big nations can bully the small nations. Um, and so, and, and, you know, unless you also address that, you know, and I know, you know, it's a tall order. I'm saying, you know, we've got to act locally, we've got to act nationally, we've got to act globally. But, you know, we have to. We have to look at the whole system. And systems thinking, systemic thinking, looking at structural causes for, for why we're in trouble and, and structural solutions for what we need to do about it, that is the essence of good politics. But we keep being waylaid by petty issues, by trivia, by personalities, um, by the drama of politics, by the spectacle rather than the substance of it. And I think our duty is to get back to the substance and to get the substance back into the public domain and say, hold on, people. It's not about who's in, who's out. It's not about he said, she said. It's not about images and slogans and symbols and sensation. It's about real issues. And here are the real issues. And unless you get people talking about what's happening on the global level, you're never going to address that stuff. So the first thing always is to get people informed and educated about it. Then you start saying, look, there's some good solutions here then you start mobilizing people in pursuit of those solutions. We've got a minute and a half left. Uh, I find it easier to persuade people we need to move power down to the local level. Uh, can, is it possible to persuade people of a, of a coherent argument for moving power in two directions, to the local level and to the global level, uh, because yeah. well, of problems well, at the national yeah, no, the thing is, we're not trying to move power to the global level. There's already enormous power at the global level. We're trying to democratize the power at the global level. At the moment, there's huge power, no democratic accountability at all. But we just accept it and say, oh, well, you know, the world's run by might rather than right. And you say, no, no wait a minute, we've got to make sure the world is run by right. Well, there's not the and, power and to so stop U.S. wars, not in the United Nations. No, well, well, I mean, this, you know, we, 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 you know, the power is all wielded by the U.S. and and to a lesser extent the other four members of the Security Council and now increasingly 
China and India and one or two others are beginning to get a foot in the door. But, you know, that, that you know, might does not make right. That's a fundamental principle of all democratic politics, but it doesn't apply at the global level. So we have to work on the mechanisms to make sure that it does. Very well said. The book, again, is called Out of the Wreckage, A New Politics for an Age of Crisis by George Monbiot, who has been our guest. George, thank you very, very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, Dave. It's, it's, it's really my pleasure. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.